0: Hi, everyone. I'm Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. As a VC firm, we invest in software companies and help them grow faster. This season on The Build Podcast, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I sit down with operators to hear firsthand how they've put their product at the center of user acquisition, conversion, and expansion. Now, on with the show. Today's episode is all about customer success. There are many challenges facing customer success leaders in a product-led growth environment. The most common challenge is how to scale customer success with a small team across a large and diverse customer base. With users from companies of all shapes and sizes and use cases, how can you create enough consistency to scale in an efficient manner? Thankfully, we're joined today by Lisa Ashcraft, head of customer success from Dropbox. Dropbox has certainly faced these challenges in spades, and Lisa's perspective is invaluable for any PLG company out there. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you. Oh,
1: thanks, Blake. I'm happy to be here.
0: So, jumping in, I, I'd love to hear maybe to start for our listeners a bit about your background. I know that you spent an amazing 15 years at Cisco and wore a lot of hats, saw sort of a lot of phases of the journey of that company becoming the massive juggernaut that it is. What were some of those different hats that you wore during your tenure?
1: Yeah, I went straight into large enterprise IT out of college. I, I grew up, started in telecom. So, this was at the height of where we were moving from what was called TDM to IP telephony. So I started out actually as a network engineer. My first job was handing out phones where I would go and collect the old phones that were TDM-based and hand the user a new phone and um, enter in the MAC address and configure the device. started out in the early days of those services that were telco or telecom-dependent it sort of begins my foundation in my understanding of how to service an enterprise through service providers. This would be the early days of of what cloud would come become later. And really, it formed my view of managing services through service providers or ASPs in how we would offer them to the workforce. And just to give you like a little bit of context, this would be around the times when an enterprise was dependent on a carrier for things like... Calling cards, pagers, mobile phones, conferencing, the the voicemail box that you would use to leave a message for somebody that worked at the company. All of these were what I would describe as service provider dependent, and we had to track and manage those. So that was, that was how I grew up, was in the telco side of the house, and moved from engineering very quickly into project and service management in IT. At this point, you start to see where... Organizationally, we're thinking about tracking all the offerings to the workforce as a subscription. That is that IT should operate at a net profit zero. We should figure out what our quote unquote business model is. And then therefore, what is our operating model? How will we make sure that we administer these services that you can request them online? It's Cisco Systems at this point where we tell people and we tell the world that it's all online. And so my job was to make sure that the workforce could request these services, that their manager, either through the finance or HR hierarchy, could approve them, that we could provision them, that we could operate uh, the changes that someone might want via a web page to their calling card pager, mobile phone um, or conferencing. And that we, all of these workflows were supported by our carrier contracts. So that sort of opened the door into figuring out finance and some of the budgets and how we make these decisions, but it also was formative in figuring out, like, what does it mean to be IT as a service? And this was when they were all on-prem. And after the service and project and program management, I, I moved into enterprise architecture. And unlike my colleagues who were all very deep in a particular technology domain, as a very young person in my career, I was the first domain architect responsible for what we called back then client services or service domain. What are the repeatable processes up and down the stack so that we could do on-demand provisioning and track who is subscribed to what? So after that, (laughs) after that for a few years of working up and down the stack, I went deep. I I moved into uh, our engineering team at Cisco Systems and specifically into a domain I probably had no business going into, but that's sort of the trend for my career is picking up new domains. And so I went into UX UI and for folks who are not familiar, that's what you click, where you click, what color should it be. And this was a network and security management software that was designed for very technical personas. This would be people uh, like security administrators or network administrators and uh, have a ton of lessons from, from what I learned there. And uh, that, that 15 year journey Large enterprise IT, having been the persona we'll talk about later at Dropbox that we service, but also making software for that persona.
0: It's an amazing journey. And 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 on the one hand, I mean, it's it's funny, it's it's kind of startups are startups, right? Whether this is <laughs> the year 2000 and you're building something that's more focused on uh, telecom and carriers and hardware oriented like Cisco, mm-hmm. or if it's, you know, 2018, 2019, and it's, uh, you know, more of a software company. I mean, a startup is a startup. You wear a lot of hats, mm-hmm. you learn a lot of things, you're building the plane while it's flying. However, on the other hand, the specific problems that I can imagine somebody coming straight out of school right now and sort of tackling and getting their hands dirty with at a startup if they were joining in 2018 or 2019, it's a very different set of problems, although it it looks very parallel and looks very similar
1: yeah yeah the the advantage that that I had in, in growing up in those days is it sort of now feels like a luxury based on uh, as compared to the last four years uh, where I had time to I had a little more time to to learn um, and and have that depth here it is it's been much more like, figure out the answer and go, and you need to draw from industry as, as quickly as possible. So it sort of accelerated the the learning curve, and in particular, being in um, part of a sales organization, the way we need to be responsive to customers. And so I can imagine someone new, Brenna, out of school without that luxury of context of what, quote unquote, a typical enterprise looks like might be wondering, how does this work? Why does this work this way? Or we should build this. And we go, yeah, there's actually an industry practice around that. <laughs> so that's been kind of fun and, and entertaining or, or exciting to work with young people in the startups is to help them understand, you know, what are some of the places we can innovate? And what are the some, some of the places where there's already a really deep practice that they can borrow from to stand it up more
0: quickly? And how did you end up at Dropbox?
1: As I mentioned earlier, I was a very young enterprise architect inside of IT. I had a colleague who was also the most youthful. I think we were only a couple months apart. So we grew up through the ranks inside of this virtual organization of enterprise architecture. He had the depth in terms of the gadgets. He was the domain architect for the desktop domain and user computing. And so he would like to play with the toys, but it was my job to figure out how we would get them in the hand of the workforce and get them paid. So as he eventually progressed in his career and went into our our product teams at Cisco and then left and, and went into VMware, the fifth day he got to Dropbox, I think it was, he said, I need you. (laughs) And he called and he explained how um, organizationally Dropbox was making some changes. And they needed someone with an enterprise context. They needed someone who could figure out how to operationalize um, what are the systems that companies have and use and where Dropbox fits, but plus also what are the systems that Dropbox itself needs to build out to to support customer experiences? So he's like, please, you know, c- come see us. So it was a colleague from my early days in my career um, who declared that I, <laughs> I was necessary. I need to
0: get over here as quick as possible. And then what does customer success mean for Dropbox? I can imagine with such a mass market product that can serve individuals in more of a personal use case, can serve individuals in a business use case, it can serve small teams, and then it can scale all the way up to large enterprises and everything in between. So on the one hand, I mean, it's this beautiful thing because you can just build this global platform a really truly mass market product. But on the other hand, (laughs) when it comes to your side of the house, servicing and figuring out how do we even wrap our arms around this big, broad, sprawling, diverse set of customers and use cases, it could be a challenge. So how do you guys think about customer success and how do you tackle it?
1: Yeah, so what I remind the customer success managers here are, is that their job is to advise, accelerate, and advocate Internally, we we translate in that into metrics around drive adoption. Make sure the customer renews. That they'll speak publicly via reference, and that ultimately, ideally, they upsell. But what I want to highlight to some of the listeners is that the way we've done it is part is part of how we are unique and different, and that some of the patterns that we see are going to be different for each of the organizations based on how they're prioritizing their their segments and how they'll win win their market. So in our case, what we've done is it's a little bit different in that customer success oftentimes has three core functions around the reactive or end user support. When someone's calling in, they have the proactive element of customer success managers. And then they sometimes have these technical post-sales engineers that are more like sales engineers, or they're leveraging some type of professional services motion. In our case, uh, we've cu- we've tried a couple different models, and because of our B two B and B two C nature, we've actually decided that we want to centralize the customer support, and we call that customer experience, into one function that takes care of both the freemium and basic, as well as the very top of market as well, and that creates the efficiencies that we need for our organization. Our actual customer success function is started out as only being available to the top of market, largest logos, those companies who were buying the most licenses from us. And it started out as a very small team. And there's a whole nother engine within Dropbox that's also oscillated in its positions through the years. Once upon a time, it was in customer support then it moved to revenue, and now it's part of engineering. But that particular function, which is usually like your customer lifecycle marketing or your digital marketing growth, it actually lives in engineering. So as part of customer success, what we've had to do, which is the core roles around taking care of the customers in a more high-touch or medium-touch method, less of the core reactive support or growth, is that we've had to make sure we navigate our core business and mindful of how our B2B B2C works, because eventually those, those companies who are buying small amounts of licenses eventually will progress and become part of our portfolio in the mid-market or large enterprise scope. And, and so for us, that means just having an eye towards understanding how our internals work to recognize the experience that our customers might be going through and how to navigate and advocate for them to triage anything that might have come up about their experience.
0: You started to touch on it a bit there, but you know, I get this question from founders a lot, especially founders and people that are building product-led growth businesses where they're casting a wide net, they can get individual users that are just trying to figure out the product for the first time and then all the way up to, you know, larger accounts and and everybody that's kind of in between in terms of size and also sort of stage of where they are in the journey. And so the question as it pertains to customer success is, how do you determine who's going to get that high-touch, more human level service? and then who's going to get more of a self-service approach, and and how do you draw that line and do that delineation? How do you guys approach that?
1: Yeah. We have some really talented people that help us with go-to-market, but my observation anecdotally really boils down to getting clear and clean on where to play and how to win. And what I mean by that is really crystallizing the segmentation, drawing the lines at company size, and anecdotally, like I've seen where we've had some confusion internally about the difference between the size of the company versus the amount they purchased. So I would say get really clear on your your segmentation and the language that you use across the company to describe that. Try not to overuse the same word to mean multiple things. So write down the, the size of the company, the locations, that's the segmentation piece. Make sure it's very clear on the different motions or go to market what will be self-serve, what will be direct, outbound, and the feature differentiation. Once you've got that as a, a single view, whether it's on your whiteboards or your PowerPoints or your tables and views that you're looking at, is then after you've clarified what you, you know where you think you'll win and how you'll play, then you assess your product readiness and your fit based on your total addressable market. And determine what it's going to take to make those folks successful. And so what I mean by that is with where we were at in our transition from providing a consumer-grade product to providing an enterprise-grade product, in a lot of ways, it was our customer success function that made us enterprise-ready. We did have, at that point, some gaps in our enterprise capability in the product, and we did have some gaps in our support. And so, by allocating to the very tippy top of market and leveraging those really strong relationships with those customers, We were able to make sure that any of the gaps could be managed by this set of talented people. After you've determined your market fit and your priorities, make sure you understand what it is that you want to give to your customers as part of what they've purchased and what you want to get from them. And that's really going to depend on where you're at in your journey. Do you need a customer to speak publicly or reference your product's capabilities? So depending on how you approach the market, if you want to take that set of people that you're going to put in front of the customer and allocate them in that way, and then make sure that the advocacy works both ways. When, like My proudest moments there are when a customer comes up to us and says, I love my CSM. So we want it to be the right give and get. But first, as a company, make sure you clarify your segmentation, where to win and where to play. But then from there, decide as a result of that, that market fit and your priorities of what you want from the customer. Send your FTEs there.
0: And where has Dropbox drawn that line? And how have you thought about it? Is it a total company size, or are there other factors that go into determining? where you're going to apply that human level customer success versus more of an automated customer success?
1: Generally, our self-service and our channel teams support those companies that are smaller than 250 employees. And so generally, we expect that these smaller companies are either purchasing directly from us or through their preferred channel partner. And so we make sure to enable both of those methods of purchasing. And then when it's over, when the company is larger than 250 employees, typically these companies would want to purchase again, either through our direct sales team or through the channel as well. So 250 is sort of our threshold. That line has evolved over time. It was at 100. So we had it segmented different. And generally my observation is we've adjusted that segmentation annually for a couple of years. But here in the last two, it's been very consistent. And then within the 250 size company, when a customer of that size purchases more than 100 licenses, they're eligible for a customer success manager who's going to work to be more proactive on the activation and adoption plan, and also be you know investigating any type of risk signals that might be coming from the customer.
0: Got it. And say you have somebody that comes in from a really large company, say it's thousands of employees, but the initial opportunity is maybe a small team within that large company. How would you approach that? I mean, would you, even though the dollars are small to start, would you be willing to allocate more resources to it in order to get them you know, to, to basically have the opportunity to unlock the full deal you know, potential in a large company? Or would you still have them go down the self-service path and wait until there's more than 100 seats before you start engaging on a manual basis?
1: We create the rules. We create a framework so that we can operate. But invariably, there's going to be exceptions And so depending on the business case that's come through and the opportunity, we absolutely do make exceptions. And I think people need to be comfortable with describing a framework by which you'll have, you know, what are your first principles or your decision-making criteria, whatever that is as a team, you try applying that so you can generally optimize your operations. But you should also expect that you're going to need to and should from time to time make exceptions. So yes, if there's warranted case for us to make an exception, we would.
0: And then for customers that are under that 250 employee bucket, how do you scale support and success to those folks? I know that you can embed a lot of the things into the product in order to just make it easier for folks to solve their own problems or just you know prevent the problems from the get-go. And there can be a support-based model. There can be one-to-many success, one-to-many support. How do you approach that for Companies less than a 250 employees. So
1: generally, what I'm doing with the top of market folks, where we've invested, you know, more of our own staff and more intimacy with the customer, I'm actually looking for repeating patterns. I'm I'm looking for those pain points and the tactics that we've applied that solve the pain. And once we can hone in on something that we observe as a play, a playbook that's working, identify if that particular set of activities is deemed to be core or context. And what I mean by that, and I'll I'll give an example, is it turns out that one of the key to having a successful customer is activation, training, deployment, onboarding, these types of early elements. And what we observed is, is that once we developed the methodology and ergo curriculum around how you teach someone in a larger company to use Dropbox, we figured out, like, what are the key pain points, both for those big customers and those smaller, and decided that performing the training ourselves each and every CSM was probably a context activity. We could source that in a different way. And so we leveraged a couple of agencies to help us with that experience and scale where where our CSMs might be able to touch, you know, I don't know, 20 Fifty customers in a week, and and train maybe ten or fifteen of those people, depending on how they're organizing the training. We can touch three thousand customers through scale training program. So I use training as one of the examples for core versus context. But inspect the repeating activities and the winning tactics that you're leveraging, and then figure out how to how to decide if if that's something you need to keep doing yourself because that is core to your relationship with your customer. Or if it's something that you can figure out is the right time and predictability for you to be able to to source and scale it and give it to the SMB and the smaller teams within
0: your portfolio. And what does that specific scaled training program look like for you at Dropbox?
1: We started out with a destiny around two different offerings. One that we knew immediately would be available to the masses. And we called that web-based training or self-guided training, the curriculum and design Really organizes it into what do you need to know as an end user or a member of the team to use the product, and I recommend always kind of generally starting there. Is is that we need you need to assume that there's the administrators of whoever's you know decided to buy it and make it available to others, we usually called an admin, and then there's the people who are actually using your product. In our case, we have you know millions you know of of these end users that are using this product, so. We create a curriculum around this end-user persona and teaching them, in our case, sharing models, sync models, and then extend that to a second class that's around the admin training. So admins are people too. They they need UIs. They need training. And why it's important for people who are admins to take the end-users, they need to understand the product first so they can make the important decisions about how they want their instance configured to meet their environmental requirements. And then lastly, for the really large enterprises that actually have federated roles, we have a help desk module. So both the web-based offering, which goes to all of our SKUs, is available online. We also have a a second offering that's a little more high touch, that feels a little bit more, in my opinion, dropboxy, where it's a virtual instructor-led training. We've provided the capability to log on and request the the training at a date and time that is published in six different languages. You pick the time, and then when you show up, you move into a learning classroom. Those instructors have a script, and as our product evolves, we update their script. And then, therefore, we can teach, again, those same three modules at a date and time in a language that folks appreciate. This also allows that particular team to escalate any issues that they're seeing with the curriculum or the script. So we can continue to to have the quality that we need in the learning platforms.
0: And something that you had mentioned that I wanted to double back to was you were talking about in looking at the customer base, identifying sort of patterns that are repeating in the customer journey. Now that, to me, also presents an opportunity for if you see a consistent pattern, say if there's a pain point or if there's friction, mm-hmm. that also then provides an opportunity to send some feedback to the product team and maybe sort of uh, you know, get out the file and, and you know, work on those rough edges right and make things a little bit smoother. Yeah. What does the, the partnership between your team and customer success and the product side of the house at Dropbox, how do you collaborate together?
1: So in an ideal state, customer success is really part of a continuous feedback loop with engineering. Most agile engineering practices discuss the need to involve customer in the feedback loop. And at scale, it may be hard to actually get your engineers in front of actual customers, though we aspire to do that, to create the empathy that we need. And so the ways that we have interfaced with engineering is to not just create opportunities for them to connect with customers directly via advisory boards or other forums, but we also have created a process where we inventory the customer feedback as part of our sales CRM. So we actually quantify the feedback with our partners in pre-sales, the sales engineers, to describe features and functionalities as it relates to the cycles of our customer so that we can provide that empirical evidence for making decisions about what the customer is actually saying. So we've gone through a few evolutions of that as our company has evolved, and I'm really happy with where we're at in terms of our partnership with the pre-sales sales engineers and with our partners Back in engineering to prioritize this feedback. I would call it a village. It's not just customer success. It's not just engineering, but it's actually the whole account team agreeing on a set of processes to inventory what the customer is saying in a more consistent way that is consumable, available to engineering in a way that they can hear it.
0: That makes sense. Shifting gears a bit to understand kind of some of the tools and some of the things that you use on your team in order to drive your work and drive your processes what does your set of tools look like for customer success? And what does that best stack look like in your mind? If it is an external stack, maybe it's internal tools.
1: So we use both homegrown capabilities and third-party solutions. I'm not really biased on a particular CSCRM platform nor a particular customer lifecycle or digital marketing stack, but I do have a view on using these technologies. And typically what's necessary and beneficial about using them is really about the change management that comes with them. And it's really about getting people to share in a view of what the right metrics are. And how our processes with the talented people that we hire can move the needle on those metrics and then inspect them and adjust the process. So to me, this is really about continuous improvement with whatever you're using. And the reality is we've had to get scrappy with these different disparate systems. Our frontline support uses a particular technology. Our sales team uses another and customer success ends up needing to pivot or swivel in between those to get the right level of access, to get the data out. So I look forward to projects in the future where we can start to instrument a larger customer 360 view with the data that we have in a more unified UI for the customer success manager. And that's what we're working on right now. But I'm not biased. I've I've grown up implementing a lot of CRMs, ERPs, so... I will use what's in front of us and make plans to, <laughs> as we can to, to evolve that to the next generation. What I will say, what I'm excited about in this space is is the marked improvement in the UIs of the different CRMs that are out there these days. You know, Less squinting and more focus on the end users and the tasks they're trying to manage. So I think we've come a long way in that front from a number of providers.
0: And you referenced some of the metrics that you're most focused on. What are some of those metrics? How are you measuring your team and how do you know you're being successful?
1: We have struggled with this area and and it turns out we're not alone as I speak with other leaders. In 2019, we will be pivoting the team and, and doubling down, formalizing it on adoption, specifically on active usage, weekly active usage. This will be the primary driver that they're focused on. And I think it's an honest metric. It, it really expresses the value of the product. I'm excited about it. And then the second order priority is the commercials so that this makes sure that customer success is rowing in the same direction as our sales counterparts. And I feel like that's a really healthy indicator as well. Previous to this, we were focused more on renewal, reference, and upsell. And that has oscillated each year slightly depending on how we were making decisions in other parts of our business if you could imagine that our self-service side has really been the first order priority followed by the outbound and then customer success you know it was sort of behind those other priorities so we've we've really doubled down on the level of infrastructure reporting and systems that we're bringing online for customer success and i'm excited about a value metric like active usage pings to the server? How many times are these folks using it and really getting value out of the software they're buying?
0: I hear more often than not, I think the starting point metrics for customer success are thinking about retention-oriented metrics. Mm -hmm. So both gross retention as well as oftentimes net retention. Perhaps there could be a quota in there for sort of growing a book of business Mm -hmm. or something like that. How do you feel about those, you know, retention and then also expansion upsell-oriented metrics for, for customer success?
1: I think that those are are useful, but I would also caution a leader to inspect the behaviors that you you need driven at that time. And let me elaborate. So for us at a given time, if those had been the metrics that were the first order priority, you're going to get a different set of behaviors. And as it turns out in our journey, what was important was to drive the advocacy externally of our customers talking about how much Dropbox was helping them in their enterprise. We needed people to express the value to other enterprise leaders that Dropbox was providing. And so for us at that point, getting them to renew was good. Getting them to speak publicly was even better. And upsell was amazing. And so while I'm not afraid of or concerned about those metrics, I would just caution the leader to really inspect the behaviors that you need and want and have a perspective on that because you're going to get some really interesting behavior. (laughs) Depending on how the systems can or can't be gamed, be really thoughtful about what you actually need at that time, especially the relationship you want them to have with that target market that you're going after. They will change the behaviors and you will get a different set of results.
0: And that's a really interesting segue, I think, into sort of a final question. And we can sort of talk about the future of customer success with this one, which is, as I view and reflect back on customer success and what that term has meant over the last handful of years, I think at first it was really kind of just a, a new term for account management. Mm-hmm. Account Management 2.0 in, in a way, right? It was kind of very focused on getting that renewal, mm-hmm. perhaps getting an upsell, but it wasn't really kind of anything new at that point. It was just a new term. Obviously, a in the last, I would call it five plus years, customer success has really come into its own and it's come to mean a lot more things than just churn prevention. So, where are we now with, with customer success, kind of in its evolution? Where do you think it's going in the next, you know, couple of years?
1: It's funny. Back when we were in IT and we were working on IT as a service, as a business model and the best operating model to support it, we had the idea that as IT professionals, we probably wouldn't be IT professionals. In that context forever. As things would, quote unquote, move to the cloud, our jobs would probably shift and we would probably find ourselves working in companies. And I didn't know that. So it's kind of ironic to be here now looking back at that client services domain in IT and recognizing that that domain was spot on. That domain was all about making sure that the things we purchased, the workforce was using, that they were trained and then it was and that it was adopted. They were getting value. It wasn't just back then what you would say was shelfware. And so now that I've had the opportunity to work in customer success, I see where what we were doing in terms of service management and IT shifting to these individual companies who are trying to make sure that their subscribers get value in growth in their business in their outcomes. And that's where I spent a lot of my coaching for these folks that have sort of been pivoted between commercials and adoption is that it's not enough for you and I to talk about active usage. You need to translate that to their business outcomes. You need to be able to say your sales are, you know, and RFP processes are 65% faster and more productive. And we can measure it went from three days to two days or to one day. And as a result, we can see that because your active usage is, Blah, And so really coaching people to understand to avoid speaking our jargon internally about what we think are key signals and pivoting that conversation to their outcomes, which was the same thing I was thinking about in a different lens many years ago. I think the future is to continue to help other companies grow and provide them the consultation they need to use your technology in a new and different way. And that that's on the customer success organization to figure out is really driving the, the value conversations and finding the use cases and training and helping them figure out how to use their investments better. We aspire to always be a trusted advisor or consultant, even if we're just a small portion of your overall IT ecosystem. We want to enable both your business teams and your IT teams to get where they need to go and to use the
0: software effectively. I love that. It really makes a lot of sense to me that it's cautioning in a way that customer success is not just about me, the vendor, being successful by keeping you on my platform. <laughs> it's making sure that it, the, it's really true to the term of customer success. I want to make you the customer successful. I want to solve problems for you. I want to deliver value to you. And I want to increase that value and increase that success over time. And if you do that, yes, it will also lead to my success as a vendor, but it's really kind of flipping the script and making it much more altruistic versus um, just window dressing, right? Just a fancy term. I like that. And I I really see the the future of customer success going in a very similar direction. So look, this has been an incredibly helpful conversation. I know for me, and I'm sure for our audience as well, to hear how sort of some of the the leading paragons of product-led growth, how they think about customer success like Dropbox. So thank you so much, Lisa, for spending the time with us today.
1: Oh, thanks, Blake.
0: Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. And you can also follow us on Twitter, at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do this by going to openviewpartners.com/newsletter. See you next time.